0: It has come undone, right? As we've seen throughout these last few weeks, there's all kinds of things going on. There is singing going on that's, uh, that's out of control. There's people popping up, giving uh, testimonies and preaching and teaching and all kinds of interpretations and tongues, and it's absolute chaos in this church. So Paul has been working through spiritual gifts and how, particularly here in chapter 14, the worship service is to be what? What? edifying, edifying, edifying. Over and over we find that. And so now as we come to the conclusion of this, he puts his attention, he turns his attention to women in the service, particularly what's going on with them. But before I get into that, I just started jotting notes down of my biblical view of biblical womanhood. I think the the role of women that God has given is beautiful, and you see it started in the Garden of Eden. It's there where God said that Adam needs a helpmate. We've always said this. Adam needed the help, and she needed to help, right? And so God knew that design, and he created that. It was so, such a blessing to Adam. He named her Eve because she was the mother of all living things, right? Women were designed to be disciple-makers. God intentionally did that. They're disciple makers. They're nurturers. There's ones who give comfort. And when they have the gospel as their main message, there's no one better in a lot of ways. Many of us, because of the influence of our own moms, came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Women are to be most concerned with living out the gospel. We watch this, we see how Proverbs 31 is lived out in today's world. We see Titus 2 and its effect on the church as women disciple and care for others. And so gospel-driven women have big dreams. I like that. They, They think about the gospel and they think about the greatness of what it took of God to send his son and to save us. And they resemble that gospel and so they dream big and they're creative. And they find ways to invite people to come and worship at the feet of Jesus. I follow a little bit. I'm not a big social media, but I do see some of the stuff goes on there. And there are gals who uh, edify one another so often in this church. I see them entreating others to come to the word, come to the feet of Jesus as they go through hard times and difficulties depending on the Lord himself. Again, I see them as disciple-makers. And I think that's the priority of Titus 2. It's older women teaching younger women. It's older women teaching them to love their husbands and their children. See, there's no other news that compares to it. lady. There's, ladies, there's no other news. There's no health craze. There's no safety tips. There's no school curriculum. There's no home hacks or bargains that go on. There's no Pinterest ideas that c- compare to a gospelized woman. A woman captured by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, she has a powerful, powerful platform. And God intended her to have that. And that's because there's no earthly person or idea that can deliver such good news to the, to the devastation of one in sin. And that's what we are. We're born into sin. It's so so interesting. uh, uh, Women bring the children into the world through their own womb. But that woman is birthing a, a sinner. And yet, God has given her the opportunity to point her children towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And you think about the powerful impact that the gospel has on women. The role of biblical women is exalted throughout the Old and New Testament uh, we find everyone from Sa- uh, to ha- uh, Hannah, excuse me, and Sarah, uh, the proverbs thirty one woman all the way into women who picture the church in the New Testament. But as we talk on this today, I want to make sure that you understand this is no easy calling to be a woman is god 's divine choice to make you either male or female that 's god 's job to do that. We should not be messing with that. We will not mess with that within the church. But but nonetheless, it's not an easy calling. God asks much of women. They have to battle their own flesh. And they certainly have to battle societal pressures that are rising, coming against the Scriptures and against them each and every day. As we turn to the church of Corinth, this was an issue. We've been working through this. They've had so many problems. Such disorganization. No unified uh, platform of of the gospel in this church. Only someone wanting to exalt themselves. And Paul is calling them to edification. And so this battle for the beauty of, of biblical womanhood has been lost in this church. And Paul, as we study this today, he is seeking to recover that. And he's seeking to make this uh, back to what God intended it to be. Now, men, as I teach on this message, particularly this first part, I do not want you to check out. One of the things we do in our discipleship training program that I teach uh, on Sunday evenings is as we work through the biblical manhood, I always take time so the men understand what God is calling their wives to do. So men don't check out in this. God has given your wife an extremely high calling. She is to be a picture of the church who adores the Lord Jesus Christ. And I and I urge you men to pay close attention and give your wives everything they need to fulfill that high calling. Indeed, it is a high calling from God. And the reason is is the gospel is at stake. It's at stake. And certainly we should take opportunity to share the gospel when God gives us those opportunities, when we see those opportunities to present the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sin. When we have that opportunity to present that, we should. But one thing we can do each and every day, married people in this church, is husbands love their wives like Christ loves the church. And wives love Christ, love their husbands like the church adores Christ. When we work on those things, when we die to self, and again, it is difficult, it's easier said than done, isn't it? We present the gospel. And the gospel's attractive. The gospel's for the lost, it's for those who don't know Jesus Christ. And when they see that demonstrate in our marriages, we have great opportunity to exalt our Lord. Well, it wasn't only Corinth that's losing the battle, I think we're losing it today in many churches. This battle of biblical womanhood and manhood has been lost. And our job is to recognize that if there's areas of weaknesses within our marriage, within our church, that we should turn to the all-sufficient, infallible words of Scripture like we're going to do today and shore up that belief. Remind ourselves of what the Bible says. And so that we're men and women who are fulfilling this great high calling for the glory of God and certainly for the good of our homes, our children, and for the sake of of the gospel. Well, let's look at a few points today as we work our way through this, and then we're going to turn to the table and finish this uh, chapter out with going to remember what Christ did on the cross. Number one women magnify the glory of Christ or attempt to subvert him. Women magnify the glory of Christ or attempt to subvert him. Well, Paul now turns his attention to the women in the Corinth church. This is been a series throughout uh, what he's done. I mean, we see it in chapter 7, he, he really brings out the problem of some of the women that were there. Chapter 11, he starts that out reminding what the headship of, of Christ was and the headship of the husband and so forth. And so that we see there was contentious women in this church. And so in several times in these previous chapters, Paul has singled them out. And here now, in the public worship, there's a problem going on. Women have overstepped their bounds, overstepped what God intended them to be doing within this public worship service. And Paul's here to clarify and help us understand their role. Now, you'll notice that I had Pastor Jason read from the beginning of 33 uh, as he started. Look with me at chapter 14, verse 33. He started, as in all of the churches of the saints. I don't know. Your Bible may have a period. There may have a comma. The Greek's pretty clear. There's a period behind this great statement that we finished with last week. For God is not a God of confusion but of peace. And it seems to really end there. And again, remember, we later in the third century, we put in punctuation and we put in chapter and verse to help us find our way around that. It was just one letter. But Many believe that the context stops there and begins with women in the middle of verse 33 here. And so the verse reads this way as we read this little section, 33b through 36. As in all of the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? Well, obviously women were seeking that spiritual superiority that so many in this early church were doing. Women had got caught up in that as well. They were speaking. They were singing. They were prophesying. They were interpreting. They were using tongues probably in the true way for languages and probably in the false way as well. This was part of this mass chaos that was going on in the worship service of First Cor- in 1 Corinthians. And they were failing to submit to their husbands. And, and we saw that as a problem in chapter 7. Marriages were coming apart because of the failure of the role of women and men. And it was greatly hurting this edification of the church. So Paul now, he addresses this. He wants to address this to get them back to an edifying order. That's been his theme all through chapter 14. But nonetheless, these are biblical principles that God established from the garden on. We're going to look at that. When he uses the word law here, he's going back to the garden. And when they're not heated, when, when these things are not heated, great confusion happens. And it's very easy to see what's happening in today's progressive church where these things are not heated and there's tremendous confusion and chaos going on. And that reminds us of verse 33, God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of peace. And that's not only in the church, but also everywhere, right? There's, there's so much wild things going on in our world, so much social issues that are just dominating every headline. And yet, as Christians, we look at the Bible and we say, well, this is what the Bible teaches. And so we live this out and we find peace. Look at uh, letter A in the outline here. God establishes rules of equality Now, this is important. I state this in a way that I think this is what the Bible teaches. God establishes a role of equality, and yet they differ for his glory. Now, that women are to be silent when it came to the public proclamation of God's word and the leadership structure of the church was not just the problem in Corinth. Notice it says, all the churches of the saints. So this was not just a command to them. Some people thought, well, this is a problem here. No, it was a problem everywhere, and it is a command for all of the churches. Women were not to add to the confusion that was going on. They were not to go against God's creative order. Anytime we go against God's creative order, we will cause chaos. There's a huge court case going through in one of the countries overseas of a four-year-old who decided that they want to change their gender. It's a massive court case that's going on and doctors and lawyers and people and they're fighting like crazy because a four-year-old said, I don't want to be a boy or a girl. But when we get away from God's creative order, what do we have? Chaos. Not edification. And the little ones are suffering because man and those who write down laws have got away from what God has deemed proper. But It's not only women here were the problem, right? He's certainly addressing, this is an issue. The worship service is out of control. There are problems with some of the prominent women in here, but that's just not a woman problem. Clearly men were abusing their gifts as well, and they were advocating the role of leadership. Now, if you have something to do, if you have a family, a job, you have something that has to happen, and the leader advocates his role, somebody will come into there. And often, in many cases, such as Corinth, it was a woman. Because these men failed to do that, women actually came forward. And When it comes to order and design for the church, Paul knew that this was a problem. He wanted this right. It, 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 it destroys the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ when men and women get their roles wrong. Now, It isn't hard to study the modern-day movement, right, the progressive, whether it be charismatic or progressive movements within the church right now that we see this happening. Men have failed their biblical roles that God has given in the church. Women have stepped forward. In many cases, uh, it leads you right back to what's happening in Corinth. Now in Corinth, the women were speaking in tongues. They were giving instructions. They were prophesying. They were interpreting. They're trying to outsing one another. This all added to this great chaos. So Paul starts to single them out here. And again, men, they're guilty as well here. But Paul wants to focus on this aspect. He wants to get this back into control because it, it shows who God is, it shows the character of God. So this lesson is not against women so remember that I I believe God has given them an amazing role right to bring glory to himself and we should help in every way to help them fulfill that now in the same way God has given roles to men and he's given men roles that he didn't ask women to do and he gave women roles that he didn't ask men to do and so that's why I always say God has called us in equality right salvation we're equal before the Lord and yet he's given us different roles to bring his glory we know that just by our own biology, those who can birth children and those who can't that's just one of so many roles that God has given. And so we are equal, yet different, as we exalt Christ and edify the church. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7 is uh, summing up a, a great statement there of, of marriage. First six verses, he's targeted women to help them in that role. And then 7, he comes, he says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Gnoskus is the word there. Be a student of your wife. And then as he goes down through that and pointing out that they're weaker, not because of physically, but because they submit to you, they're now... They're now vulnerable. Then he says this, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. That word means they are a co-inheritor. Everything God did for you men, he did for them. They stand to be inheritors of God's kingdom in every way you do. And so the scriptures warn men, be careful of that. And the Bible says right at the end of that verse, so your prayers will not be hindered. Now, so important that we understand that I am not preaching against women. I am so grateful. I uh, actually married one, and, and, and she is a constant demonstration to me. She's a constant demonstration of how God uses women to bring great glory, and I thank the Lord daily for her, and, and, and I strive by God's grace to give her all the tools she needs to fulfill that God-given role to bring glory to the Lord. Now B, notice this, the biggest threat to biblical womanhood often comes from within. See, we want to look at the headlines and see New York Times or whatever, and we go, oh, wow, look what they're doing, look what they're doing. The problem in the church is often not what's happening out there, it's what's happening in here. And this is the problem in Corinth. And so the words silent and submission are often highlighted by those who struggle with this text. And it's... But, but we forget there's a context here. This is a public worship service. And so it's in the context of authority and proclamation. This is where God is saying, I have not called women to fill that role. I've called men to fill that role, and I've also called women to fill roles that men do not fill. But here it is under proclamation and authority. However, the egalitarian movement, which is inside Christianity, when we talk about egalitarianism, that's Christian feminist inside the church. And they attack this passage. This is a, this is a passage they, they just have the hardest time with, and I'll explain some of the reasons why. One, they'll say that it's, it was not meant for all the churches on all the occasion. It was a problem in Corinth. But again, you can't get around verse 33. It says, "...in all the churches." So so that doesn't work. Second, they say that they believe that it only refers to women speaking in tongues and prophecies, but not the rest of the speaking gifts because prophecy in the tongue has been a main context of chapter 14. And yet, look at verse 34, they are not permitted to speak. Verse 35, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. Again, this is that authoritative speaking, right? And so that doesn't work either, and certainly she should profit from what takes place in the public worship service, but she is instructed to resist adding to didactic instruction over men. That's what he's saying. Lots of places to serve. And you've heard me preach on the role of women many times, and we've listed so many places where God has given women to serve, but this is not one of them. He has a different role for them. And yet, this is something they continue to push. And and what it does is it blows roles up. It blows up the God-given roles that God has. And once you blow up the role of husband and wife, father and mother, when you blow that up, it trickles down to children and grandchildren, and it is generational destruction because God had a design for women and men. He has a design for the home. Notice it talks about listening at home. That's a very important thing. God has made our homes a place of, of sanctuary, sanctuary where we can sit and discuss the the word of God together. When I see that, you know what first comes to mind? Discipleship. Husbands, are you discipling your family? See, right there it tells us that there is a place for that interaction. There's a place for those questions to come, and it is the home. And so that puts a tremendous responsibility on us men. When I go home and Gina didn't understand something I said from the pulpit, she'll go, honey, what do you mean by that? Well, sorry, I wasn't as clear, but here's, here's what I meant, sweetie. And we discuss that together. I know so many of you talk about your discussions at lunch after church. Isn't that this? is this what this text means? Go home and work through those things. That means, husbands, wake up. If you're going to have a conversation about what happened at church, you've got to pay attention. You have to actually be here. <laughs> and then you out to be able to say, here's what I believe the Word of God says. And you have to trust the Word of God. Third, um, the egalitarian movement. They believe it was a role of authority as an elder, an overseer, but not prohibiting teaching. This is one they really stand on. Women like Beth Moore and others who started out well, who have now gone into mystical, all kinds of stuff. We do not hold to her teaching at all. She held to this. She said, oh, that statement's only about elders and pastors. I'm not an elder and pastor. And so she took a teaching role within the church. Her own elders and pastors let her do it. And that's way against the scriptures. There's many wonderful women out there who have great studies for you ladies. She is not one of them. And I warn you against her because because this is what has happened in so many cases. These gals, they're very talented. They speak very well. They're clear in their articulation. And yet when you study what they're doing, there's all kinds of men in their classes. And yet, God's clear not to have that authority. And so they use that. They say, well, this is about elders and overseers um, not, not prohibiting us from teaching. Fourth, they'll say this. They believe that women should not publicly criticize the teaching within the worship service. Well, nobody should do that. <laughs> I'm going to have a little bit of a problem if you stand up in the middle and start criticizing me. I mean, we're going to have to figure that out. You know, And you see some guy with a ear thing going to come take you away. And we'll talk later. But that's not what this is. There's nothing in this, right? There's nothing in the text that says that. You can't get around this clear instruction. Silence is silence when it comes to speaking and preaching. And these are just some of their arguments. And certainly, women do pray in church as well. Prayer services where we pray together, women counsel other women, older women or teach younger women. There's many women in this church who are excellent Bible teachers, they're outstanding Bible teachers. And they lead others to teach Bible and, and to care for them. They're outstanding disciplers. Women greatly enhance fellowship. So funny, we have DTP, and um, the guys will be there, and some guy will bring a sack of food, to put it on there, kind of just spread it out. I'll walk by the gals, and they got flowers and balloons, and there's paper streamers, and, and they're, they're all crying and having a great time. Like, wow, I, th- I think I want to be in there. We're eating chicken wings with no napkins. Because we're guys. (laughs) Women bring so much to the table, to the church, to so many things. We're so glad. A lot of times when we're working on redoing something, we bring in gals. What do you think? Because we were just thinking about just painting it white. (laughs) God blesses us with a beautiful role that enhances all kinds of ministries. So there's wide open ministries for women in the church. But God established an order that goes all the way back to the garden. Look at verse 34. See the word law there. He's referring back to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Law here, particularly in this case, goes back to Genesis 3.16 where God says he will rule over you. In the fall, she was brought underneath that. She was actually brought be underneath it before the fall as a helpmate, one who came alongside. But now there's going to be a problem. Sin has now added difficulty to that. And so he brings them back all the way to the garden. And so when we think about the law of God, it reflects his character. He... Paul is saying this reflects the character of God. A woman, when she submits and when she does not usurp the authority in the church service that God gave to men, she highlights the character of God. That's what Paul's saying here. You see why this is weighty. You see why this is beautiful. And so when Paul uses the law in this sense, he's not referring so much to the Old Testament covenant because that, that got completed, right? He's referring to the unchanging infallibility of a decree of God. This is God's decree from the beginning. And so this reference to the law is not subject to change or fulfillment by Christ's earthly ministry like the old covenant was. And Christ himself refers back to this same thing when he's teaching on marriage. The apostles refer back, back, we're going to see this in a moment. They go right back to the garden when they talk about roles. And this is the law that he refers to. And so here we know that Paul wants that both men and women are to function as God intended. And when men and women function as God intended, there is great edification to the church. And when they don't, they cause confusion, chaos, and unbelievers walk in. And verse 23 says, they like, are these people crazy? And that's what happens so often. If you've been in some of those services, if you've been to some churches where this happens, you go, Ah, yeah, exit stage right. This is crazy. Today, all this is dismissed, right? Because they say that, well, that was true underneath the fall, but now that we're saved, none of that means anything. That's what they say. So Paul's wrong here that he's referring back to the law, and and, and they just dismiss that. Or they say that the Corinth church had its own problem, was a cultural problem, has nothing to do with us today. One of the great influencers of um, American egalitarianism that arose was a woman named Rosemary Radford Ruther. She passed away this last year, but she had just a significant impact on women pursuing the roles that only God intended for men. Interesting enough, she was titled American Feminist Scholar. Um, she lined herself up as a Roman Catholic, but but most people didn't know that, and she was recognized as a theologian there. The modern-day Christian church has embraced her teachings greatly, and it has brought so much confusion to the church, and a lot of it can be tracked back to her. She certainly is not the only egalitarian um, who strives to bring change to the biblical roles, but she had tremendous influence in it. She was called the pioneer of feminine theology. And I want to read a quote to you, and I think this helps you understand where this direction has gone. This is her quoting. She says this Feminine theology cannot be done from the existing base of the Christian Bible. Let me read that again. Feminine theology cannot be done from the existing base of the Christian Bible. End quote. In other words, here's what she's saying, now my words, it's impossible for the egalitarian movement to advance with the clear instruction found in God's Word. You're going to have to get around it some way. And that means that the text with its authority has to be removed or reinterpreted. Because we can't get done what we want done. And so much of the egalitarian work has focused in these two areas. The reinterpretation of scripture or finding non-biblical instruction to support their views. Because they can't do it in the scriptures. And so Paul is is after the Corinthians church. This is not God's order. And he takes them all the way back to the first times we hear God speak. Genesis chapter 3. He will rule over you. See, there's an overwhelming unanimous support both in the scriptures and in the churches. Now, notice in verse 33b it says, as in all the churches of the saints. So as the church progressed, this instruction did not change. Now, now remember last week I was talking about um, Corinth did not have... It seems in, in anything that we can see that there was elders and pastors and overseers and so forth. They weren't there. But Paul began to develop that leadership. In further texts we find where he tells Titus to develop elders in every city. And he's, he sent uh, Timothy back to Ephesus. Elders, 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 pastors, pastors. We can see it all developing from here on out. But in this case, that's not, this, that's not the same with this role of women and men. The Bible has been absolutely clear, and they don't progress. The Bible does not progress in its teaching. I want to take you to a couple of texts. Go to 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2 with me. This is a very important text. Now, this is written much later. Timothy has been sent to Ephesus. There's a lot of problems in Ephesus. They're messing around with the gospel, chapter 1. Chapter 2, men and women. Particularly, where role of women were getting out of hand again. Women were going to the front when they shouldn't be, and so he has to address these. This chapter three. They were their eldership wasn't a mess, and so they had to go back and redefine what the eldership was, and so forth. And so Timothy's back here, and so he takes on a very important instruction. Verse nine, Second Timothy, 1 Timothy, chapter two, verse nine. Verse eight, you kind of pick up the context. I want men in every place to lift up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Do you catch that word? Dissension. Then he says in verse 9, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, likewise, what's he referring back to? Dissension. There's a problem, right? I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, right? It's so easy to get caught up on the outside. God is concerned with the inside, modesty and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments this is what they wore to their gods right when before they were saved they would go and adorn themselves before their gods but rather by the means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness they they are to make a claim i am now saved i am a child of god i'm a reflection of my father in heaven right so godliness means we reflect god right and then verse 11, again, this is a passage to the egalitarianism, just can't stand. They, they have to get it out because it, it just doesn't fit with their theology. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Now, that's, that's hard if, you, if you're an egalitarianist person. You just, that doesn't fit. It doesn't, man, can you imagine reading this in New York or somewhere like that? They're going to shoot you. Um, This goes so contrary against flesh and what people think nowadays. And even in this case, it probably did as well. Verse 12, but I do not allow women, here we go, this is is where they struggle, a a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet. I've been to seminary, I've learned several languages, Greek and Hebrew and stuff like that, but I didn't need any of that to understand that verse. How about you? Is it clear? Well, it's culture. It goes right through culture. It goes all the way back to the garden. And so over and over we find this. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. Now this is important. It was not Adam who was deceived. Well, Romans chapter 12 says, uh, chapter 5 verse 12 and 14 says that Adam sinned and we all sinned in Adam. But here is the reason. He says because women were deceived. They fell into transgressions. And so men failed to lead. Women were easily deceived. And so Paul is bringing them back to put their hope in Christ and put their hope in a God-ordained rule. When husbands love and care for their their wives, they don't fall into sin as easy. When wives submit to their husbands, they, they, they do not fall into deception as easy. And so he's bringing them back to these core values. And then look at verse 15. What a glorious text this is. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity without restraint, without, with self-restraint. Now, he go, well, what does that mean? Are women saved because they have, give birth? Well, what happens to a woman who can't have children or never marries? Well, that's, that's, that's not what that means, right? When we start to look at this, we, we begin to understand he's making a comment of a large theological truth. God was going to bring the Redeemer through women. See, this is why Galatians says that Jesus came born under the law, born of a woman. God gave women in that fall... He promised that there would be a child that was going to come through that woman's womb, that one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, redeem fallen man. He was only given that to women. He was not given that to men. And so line after line after line, woman after woman, all the way down, produced the children. And in that was the seed of Christ and eventually came to Mary. And women carried that. And God has given this, this beautiful role where they live out their faith in their biblical womanhood. And so they grow in their faith and their love and their sanctity as they do this in a it life. And that word's very important, self-restraint. God has a role. And, and men, we have it too. We need to be careful. We have a role. We should not uh, uh, subvert that role either. But often it's advocated. Go to another passage, Colossians chapter uh, 3. There, this, what I'm trying to prove to you is this, uh, this continually got taught throughout uh, the churches. This was not just one-off here in Colossians, uh, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 14. It's constantly taught throughout the scriptures. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to him to God the Father. So whatever you do, what do you do? It's a good question, right? Well, now he says, let's look at what you do, right? He starts with wives. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Wives, that's what you do. You submit to your husband as an act of worship to the Lord. That's what He's called women to do. So, whatever you do, wives, that's yours. Now, whatever you do, well, next one's what? Husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not embitter against them. If you don't lead, you're gonna embitter your wife, I promise you, men. That's why you have to be discipled. You keep carry, keep growing. Because you'll embitter them; they'll they'll be frustrated. They'll they'll see the need to pass on that glorious gospel to the home and to be talking about those things, and you won't do it, and they'll be frustrated with you. And then what will happen is they'll push forward often in times and maybe places they shouldn't. I praise God that many moms, like my own mom, when we were with her, constantly taught us the gospel. Praise the Lord for that. But husbands, you have a role. So whatever you do, wives, husbands, children, you're not left out of this. Be obedient to your children, in, excuse me, be obedient to your parents in all things. Maybe kids, you might want to cir- circle that little word all. It's an important word, isn't it? Why? Because this is pleasing to the Lord. See, see, he's going through, this is how the family of God operates. Everybody has a role, right? When the roles are not clearly defined As they are today, it's not because of the Bible's fault. It's because of what they want. When they're not clearly defined, the family becomes dysfunctional. And let me tell you this. Corinth was a dysfunctional church in every way. And it started with the men. They failed to lead. And they got caught up in self-exaltation. The women followed them into that. And they desired to have self-exaltation. And nobody was edified in anyone. And guess what happened probably to the children? They had poor examples put in front of them over and over. And so Paul's pushing us here, and he goes down through fathers and slaves or employees, and then he says it again in verse 23, Whatever you do, do your work as to the Lord, for the Lord rather than men. So ladies, submit to your husbands as an act of worship to the Lord. Husbands, lead your wives with loving care like Christ, and he'll be greatly glorified in those things. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. And I just want to touch on these very quickly because we've been in these passages before, but you just see what's happening as as church after church gets this same instruction. It's not changed in any way. Verse 21, it says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Well, the egalitarians love that verse. They stop there and they don't want to read any farther. But the problem is, it says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And here's the list. Wives, verse 22. Husbands, verse 25. Children, verse six, chapter 6, verse 1. Fathers, verse, chapter 6, verse 4. Slaves or employees, sac- chapter 6, verse 5. He gives a list here. He starts with wives. Be subject to your own husband. Here it is again. As to the Lord, that's an act of worship. Do it for the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. You just, the language is so clear, isn't it? God has a unique role for each one of us given to us here. As, well, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, listen to this, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. So here's where we get that picture. And you've heard us talk about it a million times. You've been to any weddings here. We always describe husbands are a picture of Christ, wives are a picture of the church. And yet that doesn't go far enough. Because when I study the role that God has also given the wife, guess what her greatest example or who her greatest example is? Jesus Christ, he submitted to his Father in every way. Father, not my will, be it but yours. He is the greatest example for all women to live their lives. And yet, when they do that, they become a picture to the church. I I said this so many times. I'm so thankful for the women in this church because they put on a display day after day, Sunday after Sunday, how this church should conduct itself before God. And I thank you, ladies, for that. You're a great teaching tool in a proper way to the church, men, we need to lay our lives down for our wives because that's what Jesus did. Are you going to lay your life down? Are you going to take up your own desires, your own wills? Lay your life down for her. She's worth it. Let your children watch you lay your wife, your life down for your wife. Let them see them. you do that time and time again. And guess what they're going to start to see? That's what Jesus did. And the gospel is going to come out more clear, more understandable to your children when we fulfill these roles. Time inhibits me, but 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 tells wives to be submissive so that they can win their husbands without a word. Isn't that amazing? Wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that you can win them without a word. That's the of a life that God empowers a woman to live for the gospel that can change her own husband's heart. Verse 5 says that they're, they do this because their hope is in God. Now, this divine design here from the beginning uh, that God gave us is his creative order, and it stops chaos. It stops chaos that we see in the world. Now, look at verse 35. There's one word here I want to just finish this section out with, the word improper. This is a word that's very difficult on the egalitarian movement. It's ace cross is the Greek word, ace cross. It's, it's a word that means shameful. It's translated disgraceful at times. We literally get the term ugly from it. There's other extra biblical material where the term was used for deformity. Now start thinking about that when you look at this verse as you turn back to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 35, notice it says this way, if they, learn, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is ugly, for it is improper, for it is deformed to what God intended for a woman to take the authority from a man in the church. That's the idea of this word. That's how strong this is. And notice it's in the church, not the world. There are many women who are business successful. They do wonderful things in in there. But here in the church, there's a different role because the gospel is at stake here. And this is why the book of 1 Corinthians exposes this modern-day, charismatic, modern-day progressive movement that is exposed within uh, Christianity right now. The SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, just put out, several churches, one of them, Saddleback, one of the largest churches in its, in, in its uh, conference because they kept installing women pastors. And you've heard the list of why they do it. Those I took that right from why their own excuses. But not here, not at, not at Riverbend. Our, our goal is to strive for God's plan where husbands lead and love like Christ and wives submit and adore the church and show us how to live as a church. That's the goal. And you say, well, Scott, what if I don't have a husband? Because that's the case in many in here, right? Well, do you have a father who knows the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have a relationship with one of your pastors or elders that you could go to for help? Do you you have another older woman? We have plenty of those here who really love the Lord that you can go to. That's Titus 2. Go to them. God provides this so that you can grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And what a gospel prefer- preference we have when men and women are fulfilling these roles. D, the Lord's commandments versus the spiritual superiority. The Lord's commandments versus spiritual superiority. Look at verse 36 with me. What is, what it, oh, excuse me, was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you Only. Well, not only is this a little bit of divine sarcasm, isn't it? I mean, you can hear that sarcastic type of uh, language there, but it's hard-hitting. And I think what Paul is saying here, when you read this verse with me, he says, Are you the author of God's Word? Ooh. Can you imagine Miss Rosemary having to deal with this question straight up? So are you the author of God's Word? Will you not accept what God has divinely given? I mean, somebody doubtlessly, I hope, asked her through that. Are you the only one who understands it, the only one who's received it, all others don't understand? Do you somehow have some inside track here? And remember, the context is women here, but I think it appealed, this application is to men as well. So Paul is saying you're either the one who wrote it, making yourself out to be God, or you are required to submit to it because you're not God. And and look, this is a hard-hitting passage in our today's society, but this goes true in all kinds of other areas, right? Offer your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord, holy and acceptable before God. What are you doing with your body? I mean, well, you know, times have changed. Is God's Word His word or yours? And see, Paul is coming back to this, and that's that's what's happened in our progressive churches is they've moved away from God's word, they've retranslated it, or they just don't teach, right? Expositional preaching like we do, verse by verse is going out. It's not common. So we can start a new series on something that will help fill the seats. Believe me, I looked at chapter 14 and I go, Lord, I don't know what any of that means. You're going to have to help me. I mean, when you first read this chapter, you go, uh... Yeah, I'm going to have to do some work here. But you stay in it. And you work hard to understand what God's word says because that's what you need. But that's not been the case in so much of the progressive church. And so you either think you authorized it or not. And this is because you feel that the truth doesn't apply to you. And there's, that's what happens. Well, that truth doesn't apply to me. Pride of Corinth. That's just pride of superiority. And Paul's addressing that. Now notice this phrase, word of God. How powerful is that? Notice what he he says here, verse um, 36. Was it from you that the word of God came, right? Was it from you? Now, nobody in this room can answer that except the Apostle Paul. Because notice what he says here. and Notice what he says here in verse 37. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I wrote to you are the Lord's commands. And that brings us into this, this second point, the recognition of divine authority. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, So so they knew they had gifts, right? They could recognize what was edifying and what was not. They could recognize what, what the Lord's commands were and what wasn't. They could see that if a prophet stood up and said something that wasn't of God, they could recognize that because they knew truth. And then they could recognize when someone did say something that they had a revelation from God because the Scriptures weren't completed or they were quoting something from the Old Testament that spoke of the glory of God to come. They could recognize that as being truth. And Paul knew it. But he he goes on here to say, let him recognize that the things which I write. Now, this is a bold statement. This is inspiration, isn't it? The things that I write to you are the Lord's commands. So Paul knew inspiration. And he wasn't deceived by those who sought this spiritual superiority. He knew what was of God and what wasn't. And he recognized the difference. He knew what was inspired. He knew what was infallible. He knew what was inerrant inerrant, because it didn't go against what God had already said. So I see Paul as this uncompromising, dogmatic <laughs> a pursuer of the things that belong to God, that the things that God said, the commands that God give, gave, he wrote them down. And what he's saying in verse 37, he says, look, you have to recognize that what God has given me is from God. It's quite a statement. It's in, in quite humbling when, for Paul to do that. And, and Paul was divinely appointed as apostle. And he was absolutely certain that the things he wrote came from God. And he was the mouthpiece of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says, For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you. That's what he does. God gave me this, I'm giving it to you. And so he's challenging, particularly these women in this case, Do you have the word of God? Did the word of God come from you? Maybe so, but are you Sure. Paul knew that God was speaking through him. A passage that's astounding when it comes to inspiration is 2 Peter 3, 15, and 16. For the sake of time, just listen to this. This is Peter right at the end of his life writing this. In regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just also as our beloved brother Paul, he's referring probably to this text here or many of his other texts, according to the wisdom given him, right, by who? That would be God. He wrote to you, verse 16, As also in all his letters, speaking in them these things in which some are hard to understand, which the untaught, the unstable distort, so that they also, uh, excuse me, so uh, as they do also the rest of the scriptures for their own destruction. So what Peter says is, look, regard the things that Paul wrote as from God, even the hard things. Even, even the things that don't fit in society regard them as coming from God. Peter did that right before he died. And so when we look at verse 37, we see this is pure divine inspiration. Look at verse 38 with me. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Paul says, look, the rest of the church should recognize that if there are those who are not lining up with the Lord's command, they should not be recognized. And they're not allowed to continue their self exaltation. If anyone does not recognize this, this is a strong statement. This is a challenge to the Corinthians and for us to refuse anything that doesn't come from God. And I know it's hard. We live in a society that's, that's just standing against these truths, and yet we go, yeah, I know it's a little sticky the way society's going, but this is what the Bible says. And you know what? I'm going with the Bible versus the New York Times. Can you do that with your own family, though? Because there's a relational theology that's out there. And many good men that have preached the word for a long time fell into problems when their own children went away from the gospel, went away from the truth, and now they can't take it, and they call this relational theology. Their theology changes because someone close to them bought into homosexuality or whatever else. Will you hang with God's word no matter if no one goes with you. I mean, that's that's what it's down to. And this is what Paul has been teaching us. And if anyone does not recognize this, verse 38, don't recognize them. What's he talking about? He's talking about a public worship service. If this person is not recognizing what God taught, women are not to teach men, if she won't recognize that, do not recognize her. She's out of line. Deal with her. Or men who may be getting up who don't care about edification, they just want the glory to themselves, do not recognize them. That's what the Bible's saying. See, God is setting the order for this worship service to bring the glory back to God. They were to ignore them and not use them. Last thought real quickly before we get to uh, communion. Third, the church is to eagerly pursue what is proper and beautiful to the glory of the Lord. Look at these last two verses. Therefore, my brethren... Desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not f- forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in orderly manner. Well, here we have this proper perspective of the the whole worship service here, right? And Paul once again, look—he t- he calls them brother. Look at this in the text: "Children of God" is the idea. He's done this great, sharp appeal to them, but he says, "You're important. You're God's children." And then he tells them that they should be completely captured to desire to proclaim the promises of God. Right? Prophecy. Prophecies proclaim the prophecy of God. We earnestly desire to do those things, and, and, and in this age, in this time, in, in the first century here, there were true tongues a gift. There, the Bible was not complete. There would be people in the congregation that, that couldn't understand the speaker. They were to provide a, an interpretation for them. You should desire that. You should desire that people could hear the Word of God in their own language. That was a little demonstration we did last week with, with George. We want to show, yes, we can do that. If there's somebody here that doesn't understand it, we should try to figure out how to help them understand it. And this is what Paul's after. But notice this word properly here. Properly. This is an important word. It means it denotes a good and pleasing to God. It, it's an idea of gratefulness. It's, it's often translated Beautiful. And that should be the definition of our worship service, our gathering together. Every service should be edifying. It should be beautiful. It should be pleasing to God. We should go away and say, wow, we tasted the grace of God today with one another. The way we sang together, the way the word was preached, the way we fellowshiped across the aisle and encouraged one another, the way prayer was happening when somebody was hurting after the service or before, this should all be seen and we should go away and say, that was beautiful. Let's go again. Let's come back on Wednesday. Let's come back on Thursday. Let's come back on whenever it gathers. Let's be here next Sunday because I feel edified. And I want to thank the Lord for that. See, I pray that you saw the beauty of God in our songs today. Hayward and Rick, they choose songs that edify the church. I pray you were encouraged and you saw the beautiful love of God when you saw people greeting one another. I saw people praying for each other today before the service. Doubtlessly, I don't even know what's going on, but somebody's hurting and somebody's praying for that person. That's beautiful. That's edifying. That's what our churches should be made of. I I see people loving on each other, meeting needs. I spoke to several who were going through trials this week, were in and out of hospitals, and they said, Pastor, so many people reached out to us. See, that's that's the goal here. That's the goal, putting others first and edifying and glorifying God. So this morning, I want you to ask this question to yourself. can Can you say that my presence today in this worship service has been edifying First to me, I've been edified by the service. I, I saw the truth in the scriptures. I saw the truth in the preaching and teaching from God's word. Um, I've been edified by someone. Can you say that? I, I hope, I hope the way we've lined this service up has been edifying to you. But then there's another question. Have you been edifying? Have what's come out of your mouth, the way you greeted those around you, the way you sang with joy, the attentiveness to the preaching, the prayers that were given, the pursuit of love for one another, Was it profitable and was it edifying to those around you? Do you think that you edified anybody in this building? See, that's the whole context of this last chapter of this section 12 through 14. Are you edifying? See, today's American church is what have you done for me lately? So you've got to have a killer kids program. You've got to have killer music. You've got to have a guy with tight skinny jeans on and a glass pulpit or no pulpit at all and a stool. I mean, and that's fine. I don't have a problem with all those things. But, but you've got to sell it. You've got to sell it. I am not here to sell you anything. I'm here to edify you through my limited role in your life. To edify you with God's word. Are you edifying anyone? See, that's what the scripture wants. Are you edifying anyone? You know, you may be going through a hard time here today, and you go, Pastor, I don't feel I can even barely edify myself right now. My heart's broken. I'm going through hard things. I, I understand that. But is God taking you through that so that you can trust Him and survive that and edify someone else? See, there's a sanctifying process in everything we go through. Some people are going through some really hard things. You're being sanctified. Is that just so you can survive, or is it so you can thrive for others? So so we start to look at things a little different, and and our prayers start to be different. God, you've allowed this cancer into my life. You've allowed this into my life or some sort of problem, but, Lord, I want want to thrive with you. I don't know if you're going to take my life or give my my life back to me. I don't know what you're going to do, but, Lord, can I love you more, and can I be edifying with what you're taking me through? It's just a whole different way of coming at something. And, Lord, what's my role? What's my role? Male, female, children? What's a role? Am I edifying in that role? Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. It is not an easy text, Lord. It's, it's, a, it's a massive rebuke of a church that had lost its way. There was no edification going on. There was no exaltation of Christ and what he had done for them. It was all self and promoting oneself. And so you sent Paul and you poured from his mouth and particularly his pen the very words of God, the Lord's commandment through this man. And he pinned down these words. And not only here, but we, as we saw the other apostles, pinned down similar truths. Submission and leadership and roles, all given for the edification of the church and for the glory of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray as we close out the service and we take communion together and remember our, our Lord, Lord, that we would be challenged, that we would be edifying. Lord, help us. I speak to us men in this room. May we be edifying husbands and fathers. Lord, help us in that. I pray here for the women. May they be edifying mothers and wives, that all that they do would be edifying and we would seek. And when we fail, Lord, we would be quick to acknowledge that, Lord, and we'd be edifying. Lord, I pray for our singles that are here, ones you've not yet shown if they're going to be married or not. Lord, they play a beautiful role. They are unhindered by these relationships. And so, Lord, help them to be edifying in their freedom that they have. I pray for our children, Lord, that they would obey their parents in all things and edify their mom and dad through their obedience to the Lord, that they would respond to the gospel and obey. Lord, moms and dad would help them to see the beauty of that. So, Lord, I pray that our church all the way through it in every role that we have here, that we would be edifiers. And maybe that's as simple as giving up our seat to someone. Maybe helping somebody with a door or seeing somebody that no one's speaking with, Lord. There's so many ways that we can edify. Lord, I pray you would challenge our church in these ways, Lord. Cause us to be loving, edifying, gracious, and humble. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.